So as I said, we're continuing our wee sermon series this morning, and we spent last week looking at Elohim. This morning we're going to be looking at the name El Elyon. And before we read from our passage this morning, we're reading from Genesis chapter 14, and we're reading from verse 17 down to verse 24. So it's Genesis chapter 14, verse 17 down to verse 24. But before we read that, let me just set a wee bit of context for us so we know what's happening in our passage when we get to Genesis 14, verse 17. Abraham has been called by God to leave his land and that God would make him great. And God establishes a covenant, I'll bless you, and um, you, you, through you people will be blessed. And then uh, all of Abraham's family have gone as well. And we come to this point just before chapter 14 where um, Abraham and his nephew Lot, they both have accumulated lots of animals and livestock and it's getting to the point where they can't share land anymore. So uh, they basically say that we're going to go separate ways. You can go one way and I'll go the other. And uh, Lot looks and he sees this lovely, beautiful, luscious place and he goes and he settles near it and he settles near the place of Sodom. This is before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. But even at that time, the people in Sodom were truly wicked. The Bible calls them that they were even at that moment, they were great sinners. They were sinning in a terrible, terrible way. But then this war breaks out uh, amongst lots of different kings and Lot gets caught up in the middle of it he gets caught up in everything that's going on and he gets captured and taken captive along with all his possessions and livestock and all the people as well and then Abraham hears about this and he, Abraham with a few of his allies goes and he rescues Lot and all the people and the possessions and he he brings them back and that takes us to our verses this morning so he's just rescued the people and then we read in verse 17 of Genesis 14 these words after his return from the defeat of Shedolomeor, there's a really tricky word on a Sunday morning. You've got to have your teeth in right for that one. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abram gave him a tenth of everything and the king of Sodom said to Abram give me the persons but take the goods for yourself but Abram said to the king of Sodom I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the men who went with me have eaten. Let Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Amen. I wonder if you've ever come across this character in Scripture who we hear of as Melchizedek. It's one of these... Um, people in scripture that is very mysterious and like I said Abram has just rescued his nephew Lot and in verse 17 the king of Sodom who when fleeing from the bat the initial battle that Lot got captured and he got stuck in a in in tar pits and he's got out of it and now he's come to to welcome Abram and to greet Abram 
But as Abraham is, sees the king of Sodom, this other king appears on the scene. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, I would, and I hope this isn't, doesn't sound disrespectful, but I would call Melchizedek the first cotton eye Joe. Where did he come from? Where did he go? We, re- we really don't know. It's, a, it's really mysterious. In Hebrews, it's so mysterious that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, when he speaks about Melchizedek, he basically says, but there's lots to say about this and you probably won't understand at this moment. And then he goes off on a different tangent. And then later on at the end of chapter 6, he brings Melchizedek back up. Who is this Melchizedek? He's mentioned here. He's not mentioned before Genesis 14. And then he's not mentioned after Genesis 14 until we get to Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is an interesting psalm because it is a messianic psalm. That being, it's pointing towards Christ and Christ's coming. And then, so there's about a thousand years between Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And then there's about approximately another thousand years between Psalm 110 and where he's mentioned again in Scripture, which is Hebrews chapter 5 and for one verse, and then one verse at the end of chapter 6, and then he's spoken about a wee bit in chapter 7 of Hebrews. In the Psalms and the Hebrews references, though, it's important to say that they are references back to this initial person here, or whoever this is, in Genesis 14. That's not to say that he appears again in form in uh, Psalm 110 and in Hebrews. They're referring back to um, this encounter here that Abraham has with this King Melchizedek, King of Salem. So let's read from, uh, from Hebrews chapter 6 and hear what the, the writer of Hebrews says about Melchizedek. Because I want us to hear this name for God that we're looking at this morning, El Elyon, within the context of the verses that it's found. So we're reading from the end of chapter 6, verse 20, and then just a few verses in chapter 7. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also the King of Salem, that is the King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Some would say this is one of the hardest bits of scripture to kind of engage with. There's a lot of mystery around it. So, who is Melchizedek? Well, I'm going to try and form some sort of answer for you this morning. You might disagree, that's okay, but they'll give it a wee shot. So, before we say who Melchizedek is, let me say something about Jesus. Because the passage here in Hebrews, what it is speaking about is how Jesus is our high priest. That he's gone beyond the curtain on our behalf. That he is mediating, he is interceding for us and on our behalf. So Jesus is our high priest and that is where Melchizedek comes into it. We understand and we know that Jesus is our king. 
And when we read the, the Bible passages around the birth of Jesus, there's a name that we see often spoken, which is David. We see David be mentioned a lot. And the purpose for that is, is to show um, how Jesus has the right claim to be called the king. That that being, we see back to um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's uh, children, when he, he blesses his children and he speaks about how the scepter shall not leave the house of Judah. That from Judah will come a king that will reign forever eventually. And we see that build and build upon throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and we see that his kingdom shall know no end. His kingdom shall know no end. Now, it's not speaking about David. It's speaking about Jesus. And if you were arguing with and, and, and having this conversation with someone from Jewish descent, he would be able to kind of understand that, yeah, I can see how you're saying that Jesus is king because he comes from the house of David, which is the house and line of Judah. But to call Jesus priest would be a really difficult thing for them to do and for them to understand because the priests didn't come from the house of Judah. The priests came from another house, which is the house of Levi. To be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to be a Levite. You had to come from the, that, that, that line. So the author of Hebrews here is basically showing how Jesus is a high priest. He is a priest, even though he's not come from the line of Levi, that he's not come from the house of Levi, that he is a priest. And how is that? Well, even before Levi was born, there was already another priest mentioned in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, the priest of God most high. And we see that Abraham actually offers a, a, a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, we'll get to that in a minute. Who, what does that make Melchizedek and what does that mean? But in the simplest terms, what is happening there is Abraham is showing that Melchizedek is greater than he. So by default of that then, that means that the priestly order of Melchizedek is greater than the priestly order of the Levites. Which makes Jesus our greatest priest and our high priest. But who is this Melchizedek, this priest, this first priest that we're introduced to in Genesis 14, that's only spoken about once in Psalm 110 verse 4, and then a number of times in Hebrews when it's talking about his priestly order? It's a very good question. In those verses that we read from Hebrews chapter 7, we, we read that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. That is the literal translation of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And we read that he is the king of a place called Salem. That is, we read in verse 2 of Hebrews 7, king of peace. Now, it's interesting through the Psalms and even through Paul's letter to the church in Rome and other places in Scripture, we always see it as righteousness and peace. It's never the other way around. It's always in that order. And so it is here with Melchizedek. His name's mentioned first, and then it's where he's king of righteousness and peace. Now, Salem is almost certainly Jerusalem. It's an old name for Jerusalem. So he was the king of Jerusalem, but... We read in Hebrews, the important point of this is, and this is the, the author labors in Hebrews, is that he's king of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. 
So who is he? Some people have said that Melchizedek, um, that he was an angel. He was a created being of God, an angel. Others have said that he is the personification of the third person of the Trinity. I don't find any uh, strength in those arguments at all. We don't have time this morning to go into why that is. But let me say why and who I think that he might be. So he's not an angel and he's not the personification of the third person of the Trinity. I've always thought um, and still do a wee bit uh, that he is the second person of the Trinity. That he is a pre-incarnate Christ. There's evidence for that. We see that when it talks about him not having father or mother or genealogy. We read that in Hebrews 7 where it, it speaks about Melchizedek. But we see as well later on, you know, what we call that in theology, a pre-incarnate Christ is, forgive the technical word, is a Christophany. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a visible form of, form of the second person of the Trinity within the Old Testament before we see the incarnation later on in the New Testament. We see it as well with um, the Lord, the, the captain of the Lord of hosts. When, when Joshua was walking and he sees this big mighty figure before him, the captain of the Lord of hosts, people would say that that is a pre-incarnate Christ as well. Now, the discrepancy with that is the ending of verse 3 in Hebrews 7 where it says, but resembling the Son of God. That being that he's like him. So that would be one of the arguments against him being the second person of the Trinity. Arguments for it is that Abraham tithes to him um, and other bits and pieces that we don't have time to go into this morning. Or was he just a real man who had a birth, who had a father and mother? And what the Hebrew writer is doing is he's pulling on an idiom and basically what he's saying is that this character is very mysterious because we don't see genealogy within Genesis about him and it's referring back to how we find him in Genesis that there's no mention of who he is and kind of what he is and, and things like that but what he almost certainly is Melchizedek and this is what I want to labor for a wee bit this morning is what we call a type of Christ within theology the the the, the phrase would be typology we've spoken about that when we looked at jo uh, um, Joseph how Joseph, when we read about him, he reminds us of Jesus. We see that throughout the Old Testament, these types of Christs or typology where people point towards the coming Messiah through what they've done, what they've said and how they lived. But it's not just people. Events could also be formed within typology. So an example would be um, the, the Exodus account. It points towards and foreshadows a greater deliverance. How God delivered his people from Egypt and how we, we, we see the ultimate delivery from bondage. Not from um, physical chains but from spiritual um, and from sin. It's pointing and foreshadowing a future greater event. Moses, like I said, he, he'd be a type of Christ. He'd be within typology where we see him as the deliverer of God's people within Exodus, but also as their mediator, that he was the one that went and spoke up the mountain to God. And then he'd come back and he'd really to, to the people what God was saying. And, and, and what he's showing us is that actually we're going to have a greater mediator who would one day come and his name is Jesus. He's pointing towards and foreshadowing 
a greater mediator, a greater deliverer. David would be one as well, where we see within David's kingship that actually he's just foreshadows a much greater king that would one day come. And this king would have a kingdom that would know no end. So Melchizedek just turns up and he offers Abraham bread and wine. Now, straight away, some of us will have automatically gone to, that's a wee communion service. I hope Abraham had had his visit from his elder and his wee communion card before he partook of this. But what's really difficult to do is that that we often read our New Testament perspective and understanding. and, And when we see things, we try and join dots that might be there, but also might not be there. So just because there's bread and wine here doesn't mean that this is a communion that Melchizedek and Abraham are having. Bread and wine was also known as a royal meal. We see it within 1 Samuel chapter 6. It was the feast and a meal you would have with royalty. And I think it's important we start with Melchizedek and then go to Jesus then start with Jesus and then go back to Melchizedek because actually we can maybe get tangled up in things that might not be there if that makes sense. But within typology, we see these Moses, we see the Exodus, we see David, we see his kingdom, we see all these things, these events and these people. And what they are doing is they are lived, their real life lived experiences, real people, real things that happened, that reach its full reality by what Jesus achieves spiritually for his people. You could call them prophetic illustrations of of what would one day happen and what Jesus would achieve in the spiritual. So Melchizedek, this king of righteousness, Melchizedek, this king of Salem, this king of peace, who came and offered bread and wine, this royal meal, I would say is a type of Christ. He is within typology. He's pointing towards That one day, this greater king of righteousness, this greater king of peace, this greater one who would come and he would offer a royal meal. But actually, in his royal meal, he would give himself as a sacrifice. He'd break his body and he shed his blood. And we remember those things through bread and wine in this day. So we see this priest of God, Melchizedek, who might be a pre-incarnate Christ, but he's most certainly a typology. He's pointing towards Jesus. We see him just appear and he speaks this blessing over Abraham. In verse 19 we read, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And in this blessing, we've already seen it at the tail end of verse 18 as well, where we read of Melchizedek being a priest of God Most High, that being a priest of El Elyon. We see in this blessing that Melchizedek speaks over Abraham. He says, blessed be Abraham by God Most High. Blessed be Abraham by El Elyon. By El Elyon. There are a number of names that we'll look at that start with the form L. We see at the very, very beginning, before we get to Elion, there's this, there's this um, word here we have, which is L. And, and L finds its roots within the, the, the Hebrew word Elohim, which is just God. We looked at that last week. 
So God most high. What does that mean, God most high? Well, like we were saying with the boys and girls, that he is the name that is above every name. That there is no one like him. There is no one above him. That he is the greatest. There is no one that can stand before him or above him. Such is his majesty. Such is his splendor. Such is his power. Such is his sovereignty. And what this points to is, and I think we'll we'll tease this out a wee bit as well through um, Abraham's actions and what he says and what he does. What this points to is that God is the highest object of worship possible. There is no one above him. Isn't it funny that the first two commandments we have are, you love there is no other God but me and don't create graven images. Don't create idols. And it's one of the, the, the things that we see within um, the Jewish faith and now for us as Christians as well, kind of believing in Jesus is the, 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 the exclusivity of God. We are monotheistic. There is only one God that we worship. There's many false religions that say there's many gods and you can worship them. That's polytheism. But the, 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 the declaration of scripture, we saw that within the beginning, God created, is that there is only one God and he is above every other name and there is no one like him. He is El Elyon. He is God most high. He has no rival. He has no rival. There is no one that even comes close to him. There is no one that should be worshipped because there is only him. He is the only God. He is God most high. These man-made images and human-made gods like we heard about the people of Israel saying to Aaron when Moses was up the mountain, you know, make us, uh, make us an idol so that we have gods that will go before us. These man-made things and even these things that we, you know... I think even for us nowadays, we think because there's no statue, no visible thing, that actually, um, you know, we, we, we don't do idolatry, but boy, we do idolatry. You know, I, how, many, how many of us read our Bible a day, and how, how often do you give to your Bible? How often do you give to your devotion with God? And, and then if you were to tally that up with the amount of hours and, and time you spend on, on, on TV and Netflix and documentaries and all these different things, you know, we are, we are putting things above him. Things are, are taking his place that, that, that don't belong there. Because he's El Elyon. He's God Most High. And like I said, I don't just want these, these, uh, these names of God that we're looking at just to be information. I want them to transform us as God's people here. That actually they, they begin to convict us. Where are the points in my life where, where actually God is in competition for my time? Because it's not a true competition. We've made it a competition. Because he has no rival. There is no name like him. There's no one in competition with him. And maybe even just now there's things coming to your head. You know, well, I do spend a lot of time doing this and I spend a lot of time doing that. And maybe I could spend more time reading my Bible. I think that sounds like a good idea. And let us, let the Holy Spirit convict us and, and, and place his finger in our hearts where the things that we are placing above God. What are the golden calves in your life? What are the golden calves in our church? 
What are the things that actually take the place of God within what we do here on a Sunday morning? That, sound, that might sound crazy. Well, this is church. Well, but there, there are often things, traditions that we create and actually they begin to compete with God. If it's not done like this, it's not done right. And we end up placing more emphasis on the things about how they're done than why we're doing them and who we're doing them for. El Elyon. Melchizedek tells us in verse 19, he's the possessor of heaven and earth. This word possessor, it's used in the Psalms quite often as well. It really just means that he has created or he's, he's, he's made. But, but I love that word possessor because it puts a different slant on it. He's not just made it. It belongs to him. It is his. It's his possession. It's quite a different thing when you think, you know, just... He's not just created, he's not just spoken it into being, but it actually belongs to him. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. And again, like we see with Elohim, we see here with El Elyon, that this drawback towards the creation power that God has. And within El Elyon as well, it's important because he is the most high God. Everything else has been created by him. So how in the world can it be in competition with him? It's his creation. He has no rival. We see people who worship the trees and objects like that. We shouldn't be worshipping trees. We should be worshipping the creator of the trees. We see people who worship stars and who follow stars and they spend their life devoting themselves to, to what stars are telling them about their life. I wonder if you've ever done this, looked at the back of the magazine and I wonder what the stars are saying about me today. Don't worry what the stars are saying. Worry about the one who flung them into space. Hear what he says about you. Hear what he speaks over you. Hear who he has created you to be. Don't worship creation. Worship the creator. El Elyon, God most high. And this El Elyon is used 49 times within the Old Testament. And it often uh, points to God being above the strongest of authorities of this world. It points to his sovereignty and, his, and, and how he is, uh, he is stronger and, and more powerful than the authorities of this world. That at his word, kingdoms are birthed and they crumble. And that's the context we find this name being used first in here. It's just, remember, it's just after these, uh, these kings have had this battle and then Abraham goes and he, he defeats the victorious kings. And, and that's the second part of the blessing that Melchizedek speaks and blessed be God most high. Blessed be El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Verse 20 of Genesis 14. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek knew where Abraham's victory came from. It wasn't that Abraham was more clever or more tactical or he had more superior weapons. It's because of whose power and strength he went in. El Elyon. And Melchizedek's and Abraham's eyes are focused on El Elyon. The king of Sodom is certainly not. He's focusing on the loot. He's focusing on the possessions, the people and the things that they have won in that battle. But 
Melchizedek and, and Abraham, they are focusing on the one who gave them the victory in the battle, El Elyon. Friends, our God is greater and is far above anything we will ever face in this life. We can take comfort in that. It doesn't matter what we go through. It doesn't matter what we have to endure. Our God is El Elyon. He is God most high. He is sovereign. And he is the name that is above every other name. And Abraham in these verses is offered two options. Firstly, he's offered bread and wine by Melchizedek. But then he's offered from the king of Sodom. We read these in verses 21 to 24. The king of Sodom said, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Eshkol, and Memory take their share. He's offered the riches of this battle, this loot, the riches of that day by the king of Sodom. Take the wealth, Abraham, King Sodom says. Just give me the persons, you can have it all. But Abraham remembers what God had said to him. I will bless you. I will make you great. I will bless you. I will make you great. And our God who makes his covenant keeps his covenant. And it's beautiful because in the very next chapter it begins by, by God reassuring Abraham. Fear not. I'm your shield. I'm the one that's given you the victory. I'll protect you. And he goes on and he says, I will, I will be your reward or your reward will be very great. You don't need to take the loot of this day, Abraham. I am your treasure. It's encapsulated beautifully in the hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread way. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. That's basically what Abraham is saying. Don't give me the riches of that battle. I have God on my side. He's everything I need. Abraham knew that what this world had to offer was nothing in comparison to El Elyon. God most high. Friends, let your yes and your no be guided by the giver of every good and perfect gift. James tells us that those good and perfect gifts, where do they come from? They come from above. And that above place is the place of the Most High God, El Elyon, God Most High. Abraham is more focused on the giver rather than on the gift that has been offered. How does knowing God as El Elyon change how we worship him? Well, it should lead us to reverent fear. He's so powerful. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's almighty. 
He's God most high. He's the name that's above every other name. And Paul asks this really interesting question in Corinthians where he says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Reverent fear should always lead to humble and grateful praise. Do you know the power of our God this morning? The power of El Elyon. Do you know whose presence it is we gather in? Lord, forgive us for the audacity of making this about us. When it's all about you. And Abraham lifted high the name of the Lord. El Elyon by word and by deed. He spoke it and then he rejected the offer of the king of Sodom. And in this moment, Abraham shows that he... That he being, he is, who is El Elyon, that he isn't distant, he isn't far away. Although he's God most high, how is it that Abraham relates to him? Verse 22, we're nearly done, you've done very well this morning. To the Lord God most high. And here we have again the personal name for God, Yahweh. He isn't far off, although he's, although he's most high, he isn't so far away that we can't be with him. He is Yahweh El Elyon, the Lord God Most High. And in the one who Melchizedek points towards as a type. Remember, he's pointing towards to this greater king of righteousness. He's pointing towards to this greater king of peace. He's pointing towards this greater high priest who would one day come. In the one that Melchizedek points towards. In the one who he foreshadows in his righteousness and his peace and his priestly status. We have a king, King Jesus, who is also our high priest this morning, who not only offers us a blessing on behalf of El Elyon, but who opens up the way to God Most High so that we can be where he is. In Christ, friends, we are seated in heavenly places already. We're seated with El Elyon in Christ. We read in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, And God raised, him, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Beloved of God this morning, we are already seated with Christ. Our great high priest who's gone before us, who's gone beyond the curtain on our behalf. We're seated in heavenly places. But if you do not know God as El Elyon. If you do not know him as the most high God. We are pulled in every which way direction. Apart from in the way of truth. We're distracted by the words and the thoughts of this day. We end up worshipping golden calves. We end up worshipping other names. That we put in competition with him. But when we know him as El Elyon, when we, when we bow and submit to the truth of who he is, that he is God most high. When we have our eyes focused on the one who is the name above every other name. We know him as Yahweh El Elyon. God most high.
Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we marvel at the truth of your word. Lord, we will be wrestling with scripture and searching the the depths and the riches of scripture all our days. We thank you, Lord, that when we search after you and seek you with all of our hearts, we will find you. That in Jesus we have a great high priest. We have a king of righteousness who imputes his righteousness into us. We have a king of peace who calms the waters and storms in our life. That we can know your shalom, we can know your peace. That peace that surpasses all understanding. And we thank you that in our high priest, the way to El Elyon has been opened up. That we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That we share in your righteousness. Because we've been washed in your blood. God most high. Forgive us when we put things and objects and people above you. Help us to remember the call on our lives that we shall have no other God before you. We'll have no other God but you. And as we worship, would you build your throne? Would you unleash the power of your love in this place? You are the name that is above every other name. And at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, that you are Lord. Help us to do that on this side of eternity, we pray. In Christ's precious name. Amen. And we're going to sing our concluding item of praise this morning.